Turn with me uh, this morning in the Word of God to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and our text for examination will be verse 28 through 38. I'm going to ask you to stand now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of the living God. The Apostle said, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down, he prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Be seated. Last week at... um, Half past midnight, a man named Matt woke up to horrible sounds, shrieking, loud cries, desperate sounds. Not knowing what was wrong as he continued to tune his ears into the sounds he was hearing, he reached for his boots and then his flashlight and he unzipped his tent. And he ran to the sounds. And what he saw when he got there was nothing less than horrifying. Because as he came close to the tent, he noticed there was the body of a wolf in a tent ripping and tugging and pulling at something. And what he found was he was trying to pull a man from that tent into the wilderness. And the only thing that was stopping it was his wife, who was clinging to him for dear life. And so as he came into the tent, he he booted the wolf in the hind end so hard, it moved. And when he was able to look down and see that man there named Matt, he was covered in blood from head to toe because when that wolf came into the tent, he did what any man, husband, and father would do. He threw himself on the top of his wife and kids, and the wolf tried to tear him to shreds. Well, once the wolf was out of the tent, they began to throw rocks 
at it, and the family took refuge in their minivan until rescue could come. What made it all the more unsettling was here this family had come from New Jersey to Canada on a family camping trip and were told that they'd be perfectly safe, there's no need to worry about wolves because they don't attack people. In fact, they just recently read a bulletin from the International Wolf Agency. You are safer around wolves than almost anything you could think of. It reminds us this morning, however, that dangerous wild animals are just that, dangerous and wild. And we ought to be on guard for them. We take a lesson from the natural realm this morning and bring it on into the spiritual as we see here that fears from the natural world have a spiritual application. Even as the Apostle Paul notes here, we're going to talk about wolves this morning, but a particular kind, not the natural kind, but spiritual kind. As Paul gives these elders in Ephesus one last goodbye. He reminds them that the place in which they serve and the times in which they serve are dangerous times full of potential peril. And because of that, the church of God, particularly the elders, must ever be on watch because he says here that careful spiritual oversight is the means that God has required and appointed to protect His church from fierce wolves. We're going to unfold that main point of the Apostle here this morning in three parts. Spiritual oversight is commanded, spiritual assault is predicted, and spiritual welfare is secured through appointed means. We take up our first point this morning. Spiritual oversight is commanded. I would invite you to look with me this morning in the Word of God to verse 28, where the Apostle now pivots away from speaking about his own example of ministry, and he turns toward the elders of the church, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of God. I remind you this morning who he is speaking to. He is speaking to elders, to the very same people that he began addressing back in 13, calling them elders. You see also here in subsequent verse, in verse 28, that those very same people are called overseers. And we're mindful this morning that this is the government which God has appointed in His church. He's appointed two perpetual offices in His church, that of the office of elder and that of the office of deacon. And within that office of elder, there are those who teach and preach the Word of God and rule, and then there are those who rule. But it's still one single office. And within that one single office, there is this duty and responsibility of guardianship and oversight, and that's particularly the reason why the Apostle uses the synonymous term for elder here, overseer. Your Bible may say bishop. That's often how it's translated into English from the Greek. And in some uh, church forms of church government, it's thought that bishops are some different office. But the reality is, when the Apostle Paul uses this term bishop or overseer, he's simply speaking of a particular function of elders, which is that of oversight. 
So here he is addressing these church officers, and he begins his address with a command that's specifically tailored to and directed to them. He says to the elders, to the bishops, be on guard for yourselves. Be on guard for yourselves, first of all. With the potential peril of spiritual attack before the church, the very first thing that the Apostle Paul does is exhort those who have the leadership and the oversight in the church to watch themselves. Why? Because the most efficient form of satanic attack upon the church is to destroy the lives of those who govern it. The most efficient way to attack the church and to dispirit it and to cause it to experience turmoil is to attack the pastors and the elders of the church. You think about it. There's no headlines in the news when members of the church fall away from Christ. There's no headlines in the news when when members of the congregation fall into sin. But it always makes the headline when pastors do. Here I'm thinking of uh, a recent report I read in the news of a pastor who, if I mentioned his name this morning, many of you would know. For well over 20 years, he was treated as something of a celebrity in evangelicalism. He wrote books that were sold in the millions. He made lots of money from them. He was a pastor of a large mega church. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, the headlines read that he renounced his faith, divorced his wife, and left the ministry. You can imagine how that affects the church. People's souls were damaged. Hearts were broken. That's the kind of thing the Apostle Paul is speaking about here when he talks about this danger which is before the church, that satanic attack begins with the leadership often. And so what the Apostle Paul does is he turns directly to the elders and the pastors of the church and he commands them to exercise the utmost diligence in guarding their own lives. And it makes perfect sense to us this morning, not only because that's usually the point of attack when Satan seeks to destroy a church, but he also does it because it makes great sense. If a man who is a pastor or elder won't watch over his own life, he won't watch over yours. If a man who is a pastor or an elder doesn't walk in the fear of the Lord himself, he won't call you to... If a man professes he loves Jesus Christ, that he has a lively faith and he doesn't, he won't seek to kindle that in you. And so this morning, the apostle begins with a common sense point. Elders, be on your guard. And there's a verse that I found in 1 Corinthians 9.27 long ago that I took as my own personal admonition. And it reads something like this. I beat my body into submission and I make it my slave so that when I preach the gospel to others, I myself will not become disqualified. Elders, just listen to what the apostle says here. He places before his own eyes the dreadful and fearful prospect of his own disqualification. 
What good would it do for a man to speak truth and faith into the ears of so many over the course of ministry and service if in the end he falls short of the very thing that he proclaims? And for the apostle, even though he was apostle called directly by Jesus Christ to ministry, he had this fear hanging over his eyes. He could be a failure. What a real and grim self-estimate that is, that deep within the heart of even one who professes faith, he could see himself falling away if he didn't commit himself to the means. And so he doesn't only express the fearful prospect of disqualification, he speaks about means to an end so that he won't. I beat my body into submission. Elders, this morning, the Apostle addresses you. You have to watch yourself. You have to watch yourself. You have to take care that you have a living faith in your heart. Elders, you have to be concerned for disciplining your own heart and mind and behavior and life. Because nothing less than the health and the safety of Christ's church rests upon that. The Apostle, as he says goodbye to the church, believing he'll never see them again, places this very solemn warning before ministers and elders. Watch yourselves. And then he goes on in verse 28 to speak of another watch for these very same elders. As he says, guard yourselves and all of the flock. I love the language there because it's picturesque. When we think of a flock, we're thinking of sheep. And when we think of sheep, we think of what Jesus said about sheep. A great chapter in John chapter 10 as he unfolds the true nature of the spiritual shepherd and the true nature of those who follow him, that they're sheep. One of the first things that he says about him being a shepherd is that he lays down his life for the sheep. He speaks of the ingathering of the sheep into the sheepfold. He describes sheep as those who hear him and follow his voice. And that he gives unto them eternal life and that he clutches them in his hands. What a wonderful and beautiful image that it is. When he calls upon the elders to a particular duty, he speaks of that which is precious and valuable as he describes the people of God as sheep, as a flock. You see, it's on account of the spiritual nature of the people of God and of the congregation that the apostle here lays down this very solemn obligation and calling. We want to think about the basis of that. We see the duty of it here, the spiritual duty of oversight. And we turn now, as we continue to read through the verse, to think about the spiritual basis of that duty. And the first aspect of uh, the spiritual basis of that duty is what the Holy Spirit has done, you see here, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. There's five things here. As he speaks about what the Holy Spirit has done, the first thing that we see here is that he addresses them as overseers. And the meaning of the term means careful oversight or inspection. It speaks of the duty of the elder, of a particular duty, to be very careful in how he watches over the congregation. 
The other thing that we notice here is the position or the place of this duty. He says here, among which... In other words, what he is saying is that the calling of eldership and of doing the duties of eldership, which is oversight, it takes place right next to the people of God. The eldership isn't the place for the ivory tower or for those who sit outside and look in. No, the language of among which speaks of the role and the place of an elder in the life of the church to be beside the very people of God to stand right beside them and with them, to pray with them, to eat with them, to be familiar with them, to know them, to love them, to share His life with Him. That's the church. It's among which the people of God. Paul says this duty is fulfilled. And he says it's a duty given by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has made you this. What solemnity there is in that. No one lays hold of the office of pastor or elder with their bare hands. It's a place of service to which we are called and led by the Spirit of God. What a mysterious process that is. We see those in the congregation who seem to be gifted on high from from God. And then uh, there's a need in the congregation for office. And then uh, we call a vote among the people of God to vote on whether indeed that is uh, God's gift to the church in terms of eldership. And then if that person passes all of those tests, we have a solemn ceremony of ordination and installation. And in some ways it feels all too human. But then on the other, as we read the Word of God, this is how we know somebody is being raised up and appointed by the Spirit of God. And when that has happened, that elder or that pastor knows something which is very solemn. They have been raised up by God. And I want you to see the strong and solemn note of personal obligation that Paul lays upon them as he says, among which the Holy Spirit has made you. You. Literally in the original it says, you, the Holy Spirit, has made overseers. Feels the weight. It's placing the weight, the sense of feel upon them. The duty is theirs. And the purpose is unfolded to shepherd the church of God. So here's this great duty. The Holy Spirit has made them this. They haven't sought it out. They didn't make themselves elders or pastors. They've been called to it in a sovereign way by the hand of the Lord. And notice now the second basis of the duty of this spiritual oversight is the great value of the church. As he goes on to unfold his description of the church, they are to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Think about what's valuable here. He speaks in commercial terms as if a transaction has occurred, a price has been paid, and a return for that price is this church, this object, this thing. 
But notice the value of it all when you read about this. He has purchased it with His blood. We think of value and we hear the language of blood because we understand the nature or the cost or or the price for the church to be the people of God. You learn a lot about somebody in terms of what they view as valuable by what they will die for. Think back upon that example of that man, Matt, who in the middle of the night didn't have to be told. He sprung into action and threw himself upon his wife and his children that he may die so that they would live. We learn what is valuable to people by what they will die for. This is the language that Paul uses here. Christ loved the church and He gave Himself for it. Jesus Himself amplifies this whole language and imagery in in John chapter 10 again as He contrasts between the true shepherd and the false shepherds. And there He speaks of the false shepherds when, when they see the wolf trying to come into the sheepfold to attack it, guess what Jesus says they do? They flee out of concern for themselves. They don't view the people of God as valuable. But as Jesus initiates the contrast between Himself and spotlights, the point of difference, He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. You know, the preacher talks about this in a very interesting way in in Hebrews chapter 12, where he is speaking in terms of the cross of Jesus Christ and the agony of His sufferings. And you know what it says, people of God, that holding the people of God before Him, He endured the cross and despised its shame. The preacher literally says there, for the joy set before Him. It brings us into the very mind of Christ and His sufferings and agony on the cross and what He could see before Him was joy. Joy in those people. Because of the deep and profound love He had for us, He rescued us from our misery and our sin. Enduring the shame enduring the suffering of the cross that He might redeem us. This morning, people of God, when you hear the Apostle Paul describe the church as that which has been purchased with Jesus' very own blood, he is talking about you. You are precious in His sight. I wonder if you woke up this morning thinking about you being precious in the sight of Christ. I wonder how often you think about that during the week. I wonder how you think of yourself in in life's moments of misery or agony or despair or whatever is challenging you. Do you think about that? This morning, the Spirit of God says that you are entitled to regard yourself in a particular way. Something that's precious. Christ laid down His life for the church. He bought it with His blood. He suffered death that we may have life. And so the duty then of the elder is to guard and protect that which Jesus says is precious. 
What a solemn obligation we have as pastors and elders. I hope, brothers, this morning as you hear this, you grasp something of the solemnity and weight and gravity of this great appointment to office to protect and to serve that which Jesus gave His blood for. So we have the spiritual duty of oversight, and now we come into the reason the spiritual assault predicted here. And we see in verse 29 that Paul moves on to the problem, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is predictive prophecy. And uh, in some ways, I think we can say this morning, we don't know why he says it. After all, he's just come off of three years of very successful ministry in Ephesus. Imagine this church had the equivalent of a seminary training. For three years, they were pastored by the Apostle Paul. They were taught in the full range of truth, the whole counsel of God. He had been there long enough to train elders and to raise them up. He had been there long enough to teach the church how to worship. He had taught them how to be Christians. And there seems to be no hint or whiff of a wolf. And yet here now, as he says goodbye to these elders, he says, I know what's going to happen. Wolves will rise up. And the language of wolf is, a, is an image of fearfulness in antiquity. Ancient writings speak of wolves. They use the image of wolves as that which is fierce and cunning and hostile and Use the image to provoke terror at the thought of encountering one. Jesus describes the attack upon his church in the same language. He warns about uh, false prophets and teachers who will be like ravenous wolves. When he commits his disciples to mission, he says, I'm sending you out as, as sheep into a den of wolves. The language speaks of terror, of difficulty, and yet here the Apostle says they're going to come creeping into the church. What I want you to see here is the wolf behavior. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things. We note this morning that the attack against the church comes from inside of it. As Christians, we often talk about what's going on in the world and how bad everything is. And there's reason for that. We want to be discerning. We want to watch out for dangers spiritually. But the biggest problem that the church has is not the world. It's the church. Paul doesn't say they come from outside. Paul says that the wolves come from within. They come right inside the church, from among the membership, from the eldership. And what do they do? He says they speak perverse things, and the word perverse means that which is twisted and distorted and bent out of shape and made crooked. This is how the wolf takes up residence within the church and begins to destroy it and to harm it and to break apart its unity is by fudging the truth. Wolves don't arise in the church by blatantly speaking against the Word of God. Wolves don't stand up in the church one Sunday morning and say, everything that the Bible says is a pack of lies. Oh, Paul says the way they come into the church is corrupting. 
adding, subtracting, twisting, distorting, mixing truth with error. And then notice their aim and purpose in it all. As he says here in verse 29 or verse 30, they seek to draw away the disciples after them. This is how it happens, and this is the reason it happens. A desire for a following. A desire to lure people away after themselves. A desire for attention. A desire for fawning crowds. A desire to be admired. Wolf-like behavior is spotted when we see pastors and elders who love themselves. And they love the attention. Calvin's comment here is pithy and pointed. Ambition is the mother of all heresies. Ambition is the mother of all heresies. The journey from pasture to wolf begins with a deep longing desire to be needed by others and to be fawned over and followed. So we had this warning about Uh, the spiritual assault before we pass on to see the remedy or the means. It reminds us this morning, people of God, of the great and profound reverence and respect we ought to have for the truth. You see, the great danger uh, of the church comes from the wolf who twists and distorts the Word of God in order to lead people into division and away from the church and unto themselves. But the locus or the flashpoint or uh, the well from which that flows is irreverence for the Word of God. And so the opposite thing is being commended to us then. Deep reverence and respect for the Word of God as that which is inspired and infallibly true. He said that John Calvin on his deathbed among the many things that he did say to be recorded for posterity was this, I never knowingly, I never knowingly distorted a single passage of Scripture. When you begin to place that in its context, you you realize how mind-boggling that statement is. He wrote commentaries on nearly every single book of the Bible. In his institutes, which is a sort of makeshift systematic theology, if you go to the backside and you look in the indices, you will note that there are literally thousands of citations of Scripture. And then you think about the fact for over 25 years, he stood in the pulpit and expounded the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And yet, as he went to his deathbed, he wanted to make the point and never knowingly distorted a single passage of Scripture. Something that confirms that for us is if you also look in the indices of his works, what you will find is hundreds if not thousands of citations of the church fathers. The reason was because he didn't regard himself as being novel. He wasn't trying to bring forth new things. He was simply trying to expound that faith which had been once for all delivered to the saints and confessed to the church. His quest was not for novelty or creativity or new insights. 
It was to simply be the deliverer of the substance which had been handed down and to faithfully transmit it to the next generation. That's how he saw himself. And what that is, is deep respect and reverence for the Word. That's the kind of reverence we're called to this morning as a congregation. To have a reverence for the Word of God. Such that we will not entertain that which is creative or novel. To have such a reverence for its authority and power and inspiration and its divinity and sufficiency that we will long to hear nothing but the truth and accuracy of the Word nothing else. And yet we are in a time and a place and a generation where that reverence for the Word is lacking a lot. One of the great things that terrifies me in the ministry is the Internet. Because anybody can do a Google search and find all the pastors and theologians and teachers they want to find. And the next thing you know, what you see is that the church is divided and polarized with the most extreme positions on each side. And we can't galvanize together in truth and unity because everybody has their own teacher. Our Reformed world today is being torn apart by vast extremes. And one of the reasons is simply this. We have too many teachers. We must be very careful, people of God, to have a reverence for the Word and not seek novelty, but seek that which is faithful. It's hard to do that if we don't know them. Be very careful what sources you turn to and look to for your instruction. There are all kinds of people who would love to lead you away so they could have their own following. Paul says that's wolf-like behavior. It's dangerous. Well, we've seen uh, the spiritual obligation and the spiritual assault. Now, let's see here. Finally, the spiritual welfare is secured through means. Look at verse 31. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of two years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. The first means that Paul would propose for the securing of the spiritual well-being of the church is watchful exhortation. Watchful exhortation. We basically have a synonym here in verse 31 for the very word we saw in verse 28. There, Paul said to the elders to be on guard. And now after he's um, spoken about the prospect of these spiritual wolves, he comes back to admonition again, uses a very similar term here when he says, be on the alert. You know, it's a term full of vigilance. It's a term full of vigilance. It's used in First Peter 5.8 where Peter warns the elders there, be on the alert for your adversary the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Notice the danger here. The reason for the vigilance is this roaring lion who seeks to devour souls and men. And so the the watchfulness is there. Be full of watchfulness. Be on the alert because there's a problem. There is imminent attack. And so here Paul uses that term that's full of that kind of gravity. Be on the watch. But it's not just watching, it's watchful exhortation. 
Again, he appeals to his own example, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I didn't cease to admonish you with tears. We're thinking about the means of how Christ preserves His church through the watchful elders. And here, uh, Paul puts some teeth in the watchfulness as he says it's to be a watchfulness that's full of exhortation. We think of the word exhortation. It literally means to put something into the mind. Put something into the mind. And typically, when it's used in the New Testament, it speaks of admonition to, to call people away from kind of conduct that's immoral or contrary to the law of God. And so the thing that the Apostle Paul calls upon the elders to do is to be involved in exhorting the people of God, admonishing them to turn away from sin in ways that are dangerous. And I would have you know it's a tireless exhortation that he speaks of here because he says, night and day, for three years, I did not cease. (laughs) Think about that. Just a tireless exhortation of the people of God. It's not intermittent or sparse. It's not an extraordinary thing. It's to be typical. The elders are to admonish the people of God, to put in the mind the duty and the calling of God. And then the last thing that I would see about this watchful exhortation that Paul speaks of as he points to his own example is tears. He said, I did not cease to admonish with tears. It was to be an exhortation that flowed from the deepest sympathy and love for the people of God. I worry about people who like to give orders who don't seem to have sympathy or concern in them. Paul speaks of a kind of exhortation that is full of the deepest sympathy and concern for the people of God. It's so critical that the kind of exhortation that Paul speaks of here be qualified in this way as an exhortation that flows out of love because when pastors and elders don't admonish out of love, it creates one of two problems in the church, pharisaic legalism or a crushed soul. Pharisaic legalism or a crushed soul. We have to be so careful about how we say things. What we want the people of God to do is to know the concern, the deep sympathy, the tremendous regard, the love, the compassion. We do that. We'll be fulfilling this call of the Apostle regular exhortation. The other means here by which the church is preserved and protected is gospel ministry. Verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I love this particular verse years ago when I finished uh, one of my pastoral internships over the summer and it had been a long, hot, difficult summer. I'll never forget that before we left, the pastor gathered me and my family, Denise and the boys, before this congregation. I had no idea what he was going to say. And then he opened up the Word of God to this great verse. 
And they begin to expound it. And I've never forgotten this passage for that reason because of the refreshment and the strength and the encouragement and the hopefulness that I felt here. Being commended to something. But notice this great commendation here. I commend you to God. And the way that He commends them to God is to the Word. We are commended to God when we are being commended to His Word. This is how God shepherds us and and nourishes us and holds us in the faith, through His Word. What could be better to be commended to than this Word? I know he's speaking to the elders, but he's saying to these elders, I commend you to God and to this Word for yourselves and your own spiritual self-watch. But he didn't mean to exclude this as the means for the congregation because the very means that they were to apply to themselves were the very means they were to apply to the congregation. They will be protected as they are commended to God and to His Word. To its truth, to its doctrine, to its wisdom, to its histories, to its examples, to its admonitions, to its commandments. Commend you to God. The means by which the congregation is preserved is being commended to God and to His Word, and more specifically, the Word of His grace. I love it that Paul doesn't simply end with the commendation to God and to His Word. He says, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace. In other words, what he says is that the gospel is the means of preserving a church from wolves. The Word of grace. That word of Scripture that speaks of Christ and His love, the word of Scripture which speaks of pardon for sin, that word of Scripture which tells us of God's mercies. Do you ever grow tired of hearing the Gospel? Paul says this is what commends the church. This is what preserves it, is the word of grace which builds and sanctifies, because it's that word that brings health and wholeness and joy and contentment and satisfaction. And so he gives them a great calling, be on watch for yourselves. He explains there's a great danger, spiritual assault. And then he says, but don't mind because there's great means, watchful exhortation in the ministry of this great word of grace. When a congregation has that, It'll know the joy of the Lord, and it'll be preserved. So we walk away from our text this morning with application and conclusion. I think that there are so many thoughts which this passage provokes and, and brings to our minds. So in some ways, it may be difficult for us to walk away with a, a single, sharp, pointed exhortation with a passage that's so alive with concepts and duties and, and uh, solemn warnings. But I, I think there is something at least that we can pull at, a thread we can pull at. And I, I think it's this. And I think it's something we have to take seriously, is that a congregation will have to fight for its own spiritual welfare. A congregation will have to fight 
for its own spiritual welfare. I take that from the admonitions that are sprinkled throughout this passage. I I take that from the predictive prophecy of the peril of spiritual assault. I look at all those things and I say one large idea I think that the Apostle wanted to place upon the minds of those elders and he wants to have placed upon your hearts this morning is that a congregation will have to fight for its spiritual welfare. And first of all, that does not happen by going on autopilot. Again, I remind you of the context in which Paul has uttered these words to these elders. It's after years of ministry. It's after years of setting everything up right. It's after years of instruction. And the thing that I am so struck by here is the Apostle Paul doesn't just say, well, now that everything's in place, just kind of sit back and let the ministry run itself. Like a watch that's wound up. I'm impressed by the fact that his parting admonition is, in spite of everything being set up right, in spite of you confessing all the right things, and doing the right things, and having the right government, all the right worship, he says, now's not the time to stop. The work of the Lord is just beginning. We don't go on autopilot. Instead, he speaks of this proactive self-watch. The congregation will have to fight for its spiritual welfare. He says an unwatched congregation is prey. He says, if you aren't being admonished in the faith this morning and exhorted, you are stumbling in the way of difficulty spiritually. If you're not hearing the Word of God expounded, explained, applied in terms of promise and hope and law and admonition and exhortation, you're not doing what, you're not receiving what you need. A congregation will have to fight for its spiritual welfare. This morning, we're grateful to know just exactly how we do that. We do it just as the Apostle Paul says here and lays out. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of God. Be on the alert, admonishing night and day with tears. If we apply ourselves with wholehearted diligence to these means, it won't mean that we won't ever have difficulty. It won't mean that we won't ever run into a wolf. It just means that God and His grace will preserve us. May God preserve this congregation from wolves as we fulfill these means that Paul proclaims. Father, we thank You this morning for the great love which you have for your church. It's testified in so many ways in this passage from the instruction, the admonitions, the imperatives, the duties. Oh, but the crown jewel of the testimony of your great love is the purchase price, the blood of Jesus. Father, we thank you that we have a sure and certain testimony this morning of your great love for us. View of that, O Lord, help us uh, to regard with the same value how you value your church. 
that we would love its doctrine, its peace, its unity, its maturity, its growth and grace. As we see how you love your church, God, help us to do the same. And let's show that, Lord, by responding with faithfulness to these admonitions of the Apostle this morning, knowing that it will be for our good and for our preservation and grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.